This morning, uh, we're in the book of Revelation. There's a reason for that. Last week, um, this past week, we hosted um, over 120 men, pastors and pastors-to-be, um, for a workshop on biblical exposition. And many of you uh, went out of your way to help and support that cause. And I will tell you, the comment I heard more than any other comment was how much they appreciated the love and care of our church. And uh, your efforts to love them, your prayers on their behalf, your baking, your hosting, whatever it was you did, really encouraged those men. And uh, I can't share their personal stories that I heard because they're private, but there are men who are weary, there are men who are ragged, and your efforts and your prayers made a huge difference. So thank you for doing that. The book we were in this last week was Revelation. I was actually asked to preach uh, a sermon on Revelation to the men. So though the sermon will be different, the passage is the same. So I'd ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. It's on page 1029 if you're using the Bible in the pew rack. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness. Who was killed among you. Where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we unite our prayers together right now. Your spirit has a word for your church. Help us to hear it. In Christ's name, amen. Revelation, it's an exciting book. What's in it? What are all the mysteries there? But it's a book that is written to seven churches. In chapters 2 and 3, we hear those churches addressed. So this morning's passage is the address to the third church, Pergamum. And the message to Pergamum that's set before us 
in Georgetown is a critical question. What word will hold sway over your church, over our church? What word will hold sway over our church? Will it be the seductive word of Balaam or the powerful word of Christ? What word will hold sway over our church? But we need to begin by acquainting ourselves with the church at Pergamum. And we do so by looking at verse 13 where it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful, faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now in that verse you notice two things about the church, right? First is where they live. Jesus calls it, quote, Satan's throne. Not exactly a compliment. You know, we call Las Vegas Sin City. That's bad. But God called Pergamum Satan's throne. It's even worse, pretty dark place. On top of that, or maybe as a result of that, there's been intense persecution in Pergamum. Persecution so bad that one, a faithful witness who we only know as Antipas, has been killed for his faith. That's the town they live in. And yet, what does it say about them in verse 13? It says, you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. That's pretty good. When you, when you live in Satan's capital, and yet you don't renounce Christ when your life is on the line... I'd say you're doing pretty good as a Christian. But, even a church like that can be taken in by the seductive word. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. The word of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, the seductive word. I want to take a little time to familiarize us with this seductive word. And we're going to get a little close, maybe a little closer than you would if you were just meeting them on an online dating site. The first thing you need to know about the seductive word is that it is a sly fox. It knows how to slip in amongst God's people and weasel its way into our hearts. It's crafty in the tricks it plays. Sometimes a wolf posing as a sheep. Sometimes a hustler posing as a prophet. Sometimes a charlatan 
posing as a pastor. One way it's crafty is in the method it employs. See, its method is less of a head-on collision and more of a sideswipe. What I mean is that typically it doesn't just directly oppose the truth. Rather, it'll actually use the truth as a disguise and then come alongside the believer, nestle up alongside him, and whisper sweet nothings in your ear, promise you exactly what your flesh already wants, allow you to cater to the gods of this age, all the while allowing you to think you're still a believer. You see, the seductive word doesn't aim to have us leave the faith. It aims to destroy us from within without ever removing us from Christendom. It wants us to be the weeds amongst the wheat or the goats amongst the sheep as Jesus talks about in His last day's story. It wants us thinking we're on the path to heaven right up until our dreaded Judgment Day surprise. As mentioned in our passage, the paradigmatic prophet of the seductive word is Balaam. So I want us to turn back to Numbers chapters 22 to 24 which you can find on page 130, 130 of the Pew Bible. I want us to get a sense for Balaam's methods. So I'm just going to kind of summarize chapters 22 and 23. The story begins with Israel having fled Egypt, having wandered around in the wilderness and about to go into the promised land or nearing that moment They are perched in the plains of Moab. And Moab's king, Balak, is trembling with fear. So he summons this prophet, Balaam. And the idea is this prophet, who always says what's true, is going to come and pronounce a curse on Israel, and that'll help him defeat these guys in battle. Now, Balaam, we get the sense as we read the whole story, actually wants to do this because he's promised all sorts of money and all sorts of power and prestige if he's able to do this. And he's, he's fine with that. He'd like to have that. So he wants to utter the curse. But Yahweh prevents him from doing it. He won't allow him to curse God's people because he said, no, these are people I've blessed. Now, Balaam comes and says, okay, I can't do it. But Balak won't be deterred. King Balak says, okay, let's send back an even more prestigious group to try and win him to this. Now, Balaam at that point should know, hey, God made clear what's happening. He's not changing his mind. This is a blessed people, but he doesn't. He says, hey, maybe if we just buy some time here, God might be okay with it. And God kind of says, all right, you're not going to curse these people. You've got to do exactly what I say, but you can go with them. Balaam's like, oh, that's my opportunity. Maybe there'll be some angle where I can pull this off. And so he goes to the king of Moab. He goes to Balaam. He's riding on his donkey. And this is probably the story most of us are familiar with. He's riding on his donkey. And God knows his heart. 
God knows what Balaam's thinking. He's thinking, I want money, I want greed, I want to curse God's people. And so God sends an angel to strike down Balaam. But he allows the donkey to see the angel. And the donkey then refuses to go in the path of the the angel with the sword. And the, the donkey just lays down eventually under Balaam's feet. The donkey saves Balaam's life. But Balaam thinks the donkey's just being stubborn. So he beats the donkey. Now, of course, the donkey is a bit of of a mirror to Balaam. Balaam is not willing to obey God. So God is sending an angel to strike him. His donkey isn't willing to obey him, so he's striking the donkey. Only in this case, the donkey is doing right. Balaam was the only one actually doing wrong. There's only one donkey in this story, and it wasn't the mule. (laughs) Despite all of this, Balaam arrives, and he still wants to curse God's people. But he can't. God hems him in. And so he faithfully, four times, pronounces blessing on Israel. Now for the bad guys, this is a sad ending. Balaam, the prophet, doesn't get all the money that he wants. And Balak, the king, doesn't get all the cursing he wants. And you think by the time you're at the end of chapter 24, here ends the Balaam section of Numbers. And then you pick up in chapter 25 and it's kind of an unexpected resumption of the story. It's even weird. Look at verse 2. While Israel lived in Shittim, the the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. You see what happens? The Israelites are smitten with these flirty young Moabite girls who start sleeping with the weary Israelites. And from there, the Moabite girls lead the Israelites to worship idols And we find out in verse 9 of chapter 25 that in response, Yahweh brings a plague upon Israel that kills 2,400 of them. Now you could read this like it's just coincidence. The, The Balaam chapter is over now, and now we're moving on to the Israel sinning chapter. But it's more than that. You gotta look forward in Numbers, look at Numbers chapter 31. It's in Numbers 31 that we learn the rest of the story, that we see why the Balaam story is butted up against the Moabite girls and chasing idols story. Look at verse 16. Numbers 31, verse 16. It says, Behold these, and these is referring to the Midianite or the Moabite girls, 
Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against Yahweh in the incident of Peor. That's the one we just read about. And so the plague came upon the congregation of Yahweh. You see what happened? Balaam wasn't done when he couldn't utter a curse. He wouldn't be deterred so easily. He wanted the money and the influence so badly, so he figured, if he can't get Yahweh to let him utter a curse on Israel, he can bring down Yahweh's judgment on Israel by getting Israel to worship idols. So he gives advice to Balak to have the Moabite girls intentionally seduce the Israelites and lure them into idol worship. And sure enough, his plan works. Israel is pulled into idolatry, and so Yahweh sends his judgment. I wanted us to see Balaam's method. He looks like a faithful prophet. I remember as a kid reading the story and being like, why is he getting the bad rap? He looks like the faithful prophet. He's just an I-tell-the-truth guy, it seems. But lurking just below the surface is pure carnal greed. He's seemingly faithful, but he's willing to compromise and lead the people in bad directions based on his greed. And that combination, appearances of a true prophet, underlying greed that leads you to compromise the message, is very slippery. It's very effective. And it's very wicked. But his method was not unique to that day. These methods resurfaced in the seductive teaching of the Nicolaitans in Pergamum. And they surface today, in our day, in all sorts of forms. So again, I want us to get up close and personal with this seductive word. I want us to know it. So I want to give you three hallmarks of the seductive word. Three hallmarks of the seductive word. First, it appeals to our carnal cravings. It appeals to our carnal cravings. Now, it never does that overtly. For example, it could use the word grace to teach us to wink at the flesh whenever it inevitably rears its ugly head. It might use the word legalistic to undercut those who call us to that beautiful, holy life that reflects what our God and Savior's like. It might hijack the term missional to encourage us to entertain ourselves with movies and TV shows featuring lewd sexuality, rampant vulgarity, grotesque violence, 
But you see, it's never going to come right out and tell us to give into our flesh. Instead, it'll coat that invitation in Christian lingo. Nonetheless, beware of teaching that ultimately pushes us towards carnality. Back in the message to Pergamum, Jesus says, You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block so that they might, one of the things, practice sexual immorality. Or consider 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor. Eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, following the way of Balaam, son of Beor. The first mark of the seductive word is that it appeals to our carnal cravings. The second hallmark is it leads us to bow to the idols of our age. It leads us to bow to the idols of our age. I feel like this hallmark's a little trickier for us today because our idols, of course, don't come in the form of graven images and they're not typically classified as religion. But a rose by any other name is still a rose or perhaps more appropriately a skunk by any other name is still a skunk. But make no doubt, these idols by another name are taught in our public schools, sung to by our poets and musicians, celebrated in our cinema and literature. They are the idols of our day. And adherence to them is simply in the air we breathe. Sometimes we don't even notice it. They're so subtle, so natural to our way of thinking, that sometimes I question whether I can even, or I, I rightly question whether I, who live in this culture, can see all these idols clearly. But I will say my best guess is that they're rooted in the love of self, the quest for self-autonomy, the command to follow your heart. And so today's seductive teaching may use God's love for us as a vehicle to get us to bow down to the idol of self-love. Or it might leverage God as our creator to encourage us to embrace our twisted modern views of gender and sexuality. It might utilize Paul's all things to all people statement to make us shy away from teachings that would conflict with the prevailing spirit of the age. Do you see what I, I'm just trying to give examples of how this works? Regardless of whether I've actually nailed the idols of our day, a hallmark of the seductive word is that it leaves the church sounding all too similar to the world around them. 
When the church is saying the same thing as Oprah or Bono or Jordan Peterson or Donald Trump, we're succumbing to the idols of our age. Sure, the seductive word is going to dress it up in religious jargon, but in the end, we'll still be bowing to the same idols. Jesus says to Pergamum and to us, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. And Paul warns in Colossians 2, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, the idols of the world, and not according to Christ. The second hallmark of the seductive word is that it leads us to bow to the idols of our age. And the third hallmark, and final one I'll give, is that it's driven by greed. That is to say, the prophets of the seductive word are driven by greed. Now that's actually not made explicit in our passage in Revelation 2. But the name Balaam in the scriptures is synonymous with greed. He chased money so hard in numbers, he ultimately stopped at nothing, pimping Moabite girls to set God against his people. So 2 Peter 2.14 says, Balaam the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. And Jude 11 says, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. It's driven by greed. So that's the seductive word. That's the threat being addressed in the message to Pergamum. But it's every bit a threat for us today. So I just want to encourage us to guard our souls. I lay out these hallmarks. I I get us dating, so to speak, or close enough to see what the seductive word is like. So that if you find these hallmarks in something you're, you're starting to hold on to in your own heart. Or maybe it's just in a book you're reading that I like a lot of what it says, but maybe in a blog you frequent, a podcast you listen to, a church you attend, a preacher you watch. Stop imbibing. Stop giving that a place. It's a weasel. It's a fox. It wants in. Don't let that Trojan horse into your heart. The consequences of doing so are dire. Listen to verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. let's just say these results can be eternally fatal. And if a church as healthy as Pergamum could fall prey to the seductive word, 
so can we. We must take warning. So what's the solution then? I don't want to go towards that. I don't want to go down that path. What can I do to protect myself? Maybe I just need a pastor up there banging the Bible a little bit more often saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What steps can we take to ensure we don't get outfoxed by that crafty word? Well, I'm going to explain the answer like this. You're not tempted by a Honda Civic when you're driving a Ferrari. Let me explain what I mean. If you're still in Revelation, look in chapter 1. So you probably know this about Revelation. It's a book of visions. The first and most dominating vision is in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. To use my illustration, it's a vision of a Ferrari. Listen to verses 13 to 16 of chapter 1. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. With his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You don't have to understand every little reference to catch. This is a powerful figure. He's a sort of souped-up Old Testament priest conflated with the Old Testament imagery for a mighty Savior King. And this is the powerful figure, the vision, the first vision that we see in Revelation. But it's not exactly the first thing John sees. The first thing he sees, according to verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Which, if you look at verse 20, we know the lampstands are the seven churches. So the vision isn't just of Jesus in all his power. The vision, of his, the vision is of this powerful Jesus right here amongst the churches. This powerful Jesus dwells among us at Maple Avenue Baptist Church. We're driving a Ferrari. If we could, by a gift of God, have the curtain pulled back to what's going on in our midst right now, we'd see that there are heavenly realities at work here in our midst And one of the heavenly realities we'd see, the dominant thing we'd see, is this powerful Jesus dwelling in our midst, holding our very stars in his hands. And for for Pergamum, It wasn't just emphasized that this powerful, kingly, priestly Jesus was in their midst. It was actually something unique, something specific about this Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, 
the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Or even in verse 16 we saw, wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, Pergamum's asked to consider a certain aspect of this powerful Jesus. What's emphasized to them is his mouth. And his mouth is really strange. It doesn't look like any mouth I've seen. I've been to Montreal. I've seen the street performers there. I've seen them swallowing a sword. But the picture here is nothing like anything anyone's ever seen. Jesus' mouth has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of it. Why a sword in a mouth? You could answer that by pointing out that it echoes the figure from Isaiah 49 who's coming judging God's enemies. There, that figure has a sword coming from his mouth as well. But that just begs the question why that figure had a sword in his mouth. So we haven't really answered it. Well, we know from Ephesians 6 that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4 tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So do you see that? It's not just in Revelation that mouth and sword are connected. It's not just in Revelation that words and sword are connected. The Bible makes this connection in Isaiah in Ephesians, in Hebrews, and in Revelation. Sword, mouth, sword, word. It seems to be pointing to the fact that words are powerful. We all know human words can be powerful. Let's just say you've been away on a four-day business trip, and you get back. And you sit down for a dinner that your wife's made. And you say, did you have to make this for dinner? You'll see how powerful words can be. (laughs) Your little girl comes home from school crying because the other kids were making fun of her hair, which is different than theirs. You hold her shaking little body in your arms. You tell her you love her, that you think she's beautiful. You see how powerful words can be. Maybe you open that email from a family member who's again opening old wounds and tacking your integrity. You'll feel how powerful words can be. But if Revelation were describing our human words, it might say, from his mouth came a dull butter knife. 
Yes, our words are powerful, but God's words are totally unlike our words. They're vastly more powerful. And that's the point of the imagery. By the words of Yahweh, the heavens were made. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and the earth stood firm. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. When a prophet spoke God's words, a whole pile of dry bones rose up and came to life. When God's Son here on earth spoke, He calmed storms. Demons obeyed, and the grave gave up its dead. Jesus told Peter that one word from His mouth could have summoned twelve Legions of angels. Twelve legions. I say that like you know what a legion is. I don't know what a legion is, so I had to look it up. Five thousand soldiers. Can you can you speak a word and suddenly a heavenly host of sixty thousand armed angels show up? Me neither. Isaiah fifty five eleven says, My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when Revelation describes Jesus, it says, from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His word is powerful. But in Revelation, the imagery is even ratcheted up another notch. Because in Revelation, God's words are associated with God's victory. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation know that God's ultimate victory comes about by opening a scroll. Words. It's like all you have to do to bring about God's victory is is simply unseal His words. Once they're unsealed, here come the trumpets, here come the bulls of wrath. In, God's, or in Revelation, God's words bring triumph over His enemies. They bring judgment on the wicked and they bring, bring eternal peace, peace and blessing to those who are His. Can I ask you guys a question? Do you believe that God's words are as powerful as the Scriptures say? Do you actually believe they're that powerful? If you do, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This book is made up entirely of God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, you're holding a keg of dynamite. The seductive word might look nice until you see Jesus' mouth. Then it suddenly seems pretty pathetic. Because out of Jesus' mouth come powerful words, words that can take a dead soul and make it alive. Words that can take a hardened sinner 
and make him weep. Words that can take a proud, religious, self-righteous man like me and make me see how small I am and how big God is. God's words have the power of life and death. They have the power of heaven and hell. If the seductive word is the danger, God's powerful word is the solution. Compared to Jesus' mouth, Balaam looks pretty pathetic. He's like, he's like Pharaoh's magicians lamely trying to recreate God's, recreate God's miraculous signs. Compared to Jesus' mouth, the Nicolaitans of our day don't look so impressive. Did you notice in verse 17 what is ours if we stay aligned with mighty Jesus? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm not going to unpack this imagery at great length, but according to John 6, the hidden manna is Jesus himself. No one's completely sure what the white stone is. My best guess is it relates to those Ebenezer stones they'd raised in the New Testament as a sign of God's faithfulness to you. A name, a name in those days reflected identity. So the idea of getting a new name is getting a very, uh, an altogether new identity. If you take these images together, it's saying if you stay loyal to Jesus, if you remain under the sway of the powerful word, you get to enjoy a new identity in Jesus as you feast on his goodness for all of eternity. It's like driving a Ferrari, only it's way better. I haven't driven a Ferrari, but I assume. If we can just see Jesus in our midst. If we just see Jesus' mouth, just a glimpse. If the curtain could be pulled back. Then the tinsel words of Balaam would no longer lure us in. That's the whole of the sermon. Which word holds sway over you? Which word holds sway over our church? The seductive word of Balaam or the powerful word of Christ? God gave us the book of Revelation to help us pull the curtain back to see Jesus rightly dwelling with us. But Revelation is not the only thing God gave us to help, Jesus, help us see Jesus clearly. He also gave us the Lord's Supper, a meal at which we can be reminded of what Christ has done for us, a meal at which we can be reminded that Christ dwells with us. 
So as we now turn our attention to this meal, let's utilize it as God intended to let us to let it call our attention to the Jesus we serve. Mighty, kingly, conquering Jesus. Conquered sin on the cross. Who conquered death. Our priest. Our intercessor. The one with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to behold our God. Nothing can compare. And specifically this morning, help us to behold the mouth of Jesus. Powerful words that will bring judgment on the wicked and protection for those who hide themselves in Christ. And so, Lord, where the seductive word is trying to get a hold of people in this room, we together pray and ask that you would not allow that sly fox to deceive them any longer. And guard all of our hearts that we might not fall. Help us to repent and see Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.